Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the literature prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast. Today we have Dr. Alice Hall from the University of York. Uh, she was one of the top 10, 10 academics chosen as new generation thinkers by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC. Um, she's also set up a new MA in Medical History and Humanities course, a program which launched in 2016. She's currently uh, the Springboard Fellowship funded by Hold a fellowship funded by the Academy of Medical Science and the Wellcome Trust. Uh, and today, what I want to talk to uh, Dr. Hall and Alice about is uh, her book, um, Disability in Modern Fiction, Faulkner, Morrison, Cousy, and the Nobel Prize for Literature. So uh, obviously quite relevant to our podcast um, with a angle on disability studies. So. Um, Alice, maybe we can start off just with some basic uh, discussion about the relationship between literature and disability rights. So why does literature matter for thinking about disability rights? Um, well, first of all, thank you for that introduction and thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm um, delighted to be here. Um, so I guess thinking about why literature matters for disability rights, um, I guess the first thing I would like to say is that we learn about the world through literature. Many people encounter disability through the stories that they read, that they hear, maybe through childhood stories and then throughout their whole lives. And literature can obviously perpetuate stereotypes um, and be part of kind of a set of damaging discourses about uh, about the ways in which we might understand disability. But I think it can also um, promote engagement with other perspectives. So it uh, it can introduce us to other points of view. It can invite us to think about things from a different perspective. Uh, and when we read a story that's narrated in the first person, we gain a kind of certain intimacy with that character. So that's led some critics to sort of suggest that literature might be understood as a kind of a unique space for thinking about those kind of other perspectives. And uh, one of the people, uh, the key authors that I talked about in the book, Toni Morrison, who is herself a Nobel Prize winner, um, she's really, really interested in this, this idea of literature as posing a kind of empathetic challenge. Um, she says in one of her critical essays, for me, imagining is not merely looking or looking at, nor is it taking oneself intact into the other. It is for the purposes of the work becoming so here she's sort of suggesting that there's a kind of um uh collapse in the the the, the um uh, boundary between the kind of author character and reader here and that for her as an author or sometimes as a reader 
um, this process of becoming is a very kind of active and engaged one where it's this idea of sort of um, getting under the skin of a character or inhabit sort of being in their shoes perhaps. So I'm interested in thinking, I guess, um, about why literature matters for disability rights for, for many, many ways, but particularly for thinking about how it might encourage us and sensitise us to thinking about other points of view. Hmm. Um, even at the same time as we might kind of acknowledge the limits of that, the limits of that struggle to do so. Um, and I think in within disability studies, um, many kind of disability rights activists and advocates have made a sort of distinction, uh, which is really, really key to lots of campaigns to do with disability equality um, between the sort of medical model of disability and the social model, and which is also sometimes called the cultural model. Um, so a kind of social model point of view focuses on uh, sort of functional impairments like a missing limb or a sensory impairment like deafness and how that how that affects a person's life. Whereas a social, so that's the medical model, whereas a social model focuses more on the ways in which society disables that person. So that might be uh, the lack of a ramp to enter a building or um, the fact that most people don't know sign language. And so this idea of a kind of social or cultural model um, is really, really um, inherent in it is this idea that people's perception of, um, of disability and the language that they use to talk about it and the stories they tell about it, cultural narratives that are, that's, that are circulating about it, that those really, really um, matter and that they affect the way in which people, disabled people's place in society is understood. Um, so I think reading um, and literary processes, whether it's literary criticism, whether it's reading or the process of writing, might be seen to perhaps kind of sensitise us to the ways in which those narratives are constructed, that disability is a very flexible category, that it's a shifting, historically contingent category, and that it's constantly being rewritten and renegotiated. Um, and again, I think we can perhaps, given that this is a Nobel Prize podcast, uh, maybe uh, a lovely quote from from Toni Morrison from her Nobel Prize lecture um, really I think encapsulates this and she says oppressive language does not does more than represent violence it is violence it does more than represent the limits of knowledge it limits knowledge it must be rejected altered and exposed so here she's talking about how language can absolutely be a kind of tool of oppression and can enact violence but also in this process of rejecting and altering and exposing it, um, studying that language and using that language can also be a part of challenging some of those stereotypes and some of those oppressive cultural narratives, I think. You're talking about the, how literature has a role in uh, rethinking the narratives of how we think about disability uh, in society. And of course, you know, what you mentioned about Toni Morrison about the language, it, basically, or just like that post structural thinking, right? like language represents how we, how reality manifests reality of sorts, right? So of course, if we want to change our understanding of disability, um, literature as the creative use of language is such an important role. Um, now, of course, you just mentioned Toni Morrison a few times and your book talks about uh, three 
Nobel laureates aside from Morrison, William Faulkner, and also J.M. Christie. Uh, so why did you choose these three Nobel laureates to talk about disability? Um, well, yeah, I think I, ch- I chose them because um, many people might initially think about disability in literature as quite a kind of niche interest, as quite a kind of narrow minority concern. Um, and I really wanted to challenge that in this book, um, as many other writers working within the field of literature and disability want to do. And I wanted to do that partly by choosing these three Nobel Prize winners, William Faulkner, Toni Morrison and J.M. Kutsia. And to, to choose these three really, really celebrated, canonical now writers who are, you know, have, have great sort of cultural um, capital, great cultural prestige, in order to highlight how disability actually is a key concern of some of the most celebrated literary writing of the 20th century. So while there's still quite a lack of writing about disability in mainstream literary criticism, might, while it still might be quite a kind of um, niche aspect of literary criticism, when you actually look at 20th, 21st century fiction and start thinking about how many of those texts are about disability, you might, will probably notice that it's everywhere and that there's a real wealth of representations of disability. Um, so, so I'm interested in it from that point of view. Another reason why I chose um, these three Nobel Prize winners is because they're, as well as being writers of fiction, they're also critics and public intellectuals. And the Nobel Prize speech kind of, if uh, lecture rather, if kind of gives them this moment where they are expected to kind of outline their their aesthetic vision, their 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 view of what it is to be a writer and why that's important. And one of the things that interested me is how they actually use disability as a metaphor. All three of them use metaphors of disability at that key moment in their career um, as a way of structuring their their thinking about um, their own contribution and about how how their writing works and the importance of it. So I'm interested in yeah disability, the representations of disability in their works, but also um, how they use it as a critical metaphor. I'm wondering um, when you were uh, selecting these authors or specifically focusing on these three writers, um, uh, was the Nobel lecture a, a very uh, important reason as to why you framed the project um, with an emphasis on Nobel Prize? Or was it like there are other elements of the Nobel Prize that drew your, draw your attention to disability studies and literature? Um, I think it was that combination of wanting to make this case about um, how central disability is to many of the really, really um, uh, uh, kind of culturally celebrated uh, novels and texts of the 20th, 20th century in this book. Um, so so there are, other, there are a lot of other, you know, other texts chosen, but um, I think the fact that they all had won the Nobel Prize and had used disability as a metaphor in those lectures did create a nice um, a nice connection between them because obviously they are from very different contexts, period. But um, so I guess that the lecture, yeah, was that the, the focus on the, the actual text of those lectures, uh, yeah, was an important part of, of why why I chose them and why I thought that they worked well as kind of case studies, I guess, for this broader argument about um, the, the importance of disability in 20th century writing. Yeah, um, I, I, I recall I read somewhere, um, 
I think it was from Rebecca Braun, which, which she, she also did uh, some study on um, literary celebrity and Nobel laureates. And she mentioned how uh, the Nobel lecture served as a function where the uh, laureates for the first time, they can speak up, right? Have their voice heard as a Nobel laureate because for the whole process, for the most part, it's all thrusted upon the writers, right? They have no choice to then reject or uh, accept the Nobel Prize. Like they basically thrust upon them. I mean, yes, Sartre rejected the Nobel Prize, but it, they weren't asked that they wanted the prize, right? So all this like thrust upon them, like the, the Swedish Academy tells the whole world, this is why you win the Nobel Prize and everyone knows the Nobel Prize, uh, the Swedish Academy's version, right? But they don't really hear from the laureates themselves. And so the Nobel lecture is uh, an important platform for them to speak up. And I'm just wondering maybe if that's also uh, useful um, for a disability studies perspective, because maybe the Swedish Academy didn't highlight that sort of disability element, a uh, studies element in their works, but the uh, Nobel laureates in the lectures, they do manage to bring that in, um, you know, to showcase, you know, that's an important uh, aspect of their artistic vision of sorts, right? Mm, definitely. But I think as well as that, that sense of it being uh, sort of thrust upon them and obviously a great honor is and a great kind of, and there's a really, really strong sense of the, in Morrison's lecture, for example, of the responsibility that comes with a writer and I guess we might get onto this a bit more later but but this sense of um holding language in your hands and holding the award in in uh in trust that you I think Portman mentions he just sort of says you hold you know I'm, I'm just sort of holding this award and and but as a sort of temporarily and then it will obviously be passed on down the generations so the sense of the kind of um the sort of ethical I think all of three of them are interested in the kind of ethical responsibilities that come with processes of representation not just to do with disability but also to do with race and to do with gender um but that sense that with language comes a, a kind of power and a kind of uh, agency um and that's something that is, that, that is also particularly for jm kutsia um South african writer something that's very quite he feels it seems um from his works he seems was quite ambivalent about as well and he's the writer of a book called Elizabeth Costello where he's creating this fictional figure who has a, a lot of kind of parallels with him although she's a woman um in the sense that she's a white South African Costello Kutsia sort of play but she's this kind of fictionalized lecturer and then he uses this fictionalized figure within his lectures within his kind of more academically framed lecture performances, um, he delivers them as this sort of fictionalised Elizabeth Costello figure. Um, and that's not necessarily in the Nobel Prize lecture, but he definitely uses these kind of quite, com in that lecture too, quite complex framing devices of kind of, of conversations between rather ambiguous figures as a way of complicating this uh, this position of uh, the writer who stands up and tells you their authentic vision, because actually it's much more, particularly in Kutsia's work, but I think in 
in all of the, the Faulkner Morris bankruptcy is what um, the kind of the sense of the responsibility and the ethical weight of that position comes with uh, quite a few kind of complexities and ambiguities and, and, and challenges and difficulties, which are then manifested, I think, in these in these kind of experiment experiments with form. You uh, mentioned a few times about ethics uh, in um, the Nobel lectures of these writers. Um, so can you maybe also explain a little bit more about your understanding of the Nobel's notion of literature written in an ideal direction? Is there a, an ethical dimension of the uh, the prize that interests you? Sure, yeah. So in his will, um, Nobel specified that all of the prizes for literature, physics, chemistry, medicine and peace um, should be award to, awarded to those who have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. That was the, the sort of the, the specification in the previous year. But for the literature prize, he added a specific requirement. The winner must be the person who should who shall have produced the most outstanding work in an ideal direction. And of course, as you'll be <laughs> well aware, there's been a lot of debate about what this notion of an ideal direction, uh, an ideal kind of literature might be. And uh, John Sutherland's a useful critic for thinking about this because he argues that um, in 1901, the time when the prize was set up, um, idealistic, that term, was often opposed to realistic. And that this fits with the with a kind of late 19th century idea of literature as uh, embodying an ideal or a kind of set of transcendental spiritual values. And I think one of the things I'm really interested in uh, in thinking about these authors and thinking about them in relation to embodiment and disability is how we kind of square that, that question of sort of idea of a kind of uh, transcendental universalized ideal with the award the awards given to these writers who are very interested in the material in historical specificity in the the everyday in the the sort of all of that all of that very very kind of yeah that material aspect of it so and one of the ways I think we might consider it is how is going back to that idea of a kind of a process, a, a staging of an empathetic process or a question of how you mediate between the roles of writer and critic or writer and character or reader and character, I think there's this real sense of um, an interest in, in the processes of mediation in all of the, 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 the works that I focus on in the book. And the translation of Nobel's Will does actually suggest this idea of process of or a movement in a direction towards an ideal. So it's mm. this kind of striving to communicate or to represent something, but then also perhaps for these writers kind of at the same time acknowledging the limits of that. Um, and I think this is a kind of powerful idea for, for their writing, this idea of moving between physical and metaphorical, between two different consciousness, two different, different consciousnesses, um, between the fictional and the critical. So I guess, this idea of the ideal is very malleable yeah. and is obviously itself shifting and connected very much up to, to different periods. But I would really emphasize this particular translation, this idea of a kind of a process, a movement in a direction towards an ideal as being something that connects particular writers. You mentioned um, about uh, some aspects of metaphor 
in your explanation just now about the ideal direction. I'm really interested in that. Um, can, can you unpack a little bit, a bit more about this? Yeah, I think maybe we might think about it um, in relation to perhaps to Morrison's lecture would be a helpful way of, of thinking about, about that because she sets up this kind of fable-like fairy tale structure that has uh, an old black blind woman at the centre of it. So it's structured around disability. Um, and in the lecture, she tells the story of a group of young people who visit a blind rural prophet, as she describes it. And these young people, she says, are bent on disproving her clairvoyance. They want to show her up to be a fraud. And they are holding this, this bird in, her, their, in their hands. And they want to try to get her, the old woman to tell them definitively whether the bird that they're holding is dead or alive. And then instead of um, answering the question directly, the old woman redefines the nature of the question itself. And she, she reminds the young people that the bird is in their hands. So we get this kind of play with blindness and insight, the notion of the bird in the hand, that kind of that kind of expression, um, and this kind of rewritten Tiresias figure who's who's reworked as a kind of uh, former female slave. And then, so you get this kind of telling of the story, and then you get this um, it's relatively kind of uh, classic format, fairy tale like fables, like as I said. But then we get this kind of moment of rupture in the in the lecture where Morrison almost intervenes almost within her own story. And she says, and you get this shift in the, the register of the language. She says, and this is a quotation from it. She says, so I choose to read the bird as language and the woman as a practiced writer. Uh, being a writer, she thinks of language partly as a living thing over which one has control, but mostly as agency, as an act with consequences. So here we get this, just to go back to your question, we get this kind of really, really direct kind of intervention to highlight this uh, rich metaphorical potential of this structure, of this fable-like fairy tale structure. And so she's kind of inviting, um, obviously inviting a whole range of different metaphorical readings from this quite simple tale and this kind of really classic tale that has been reworked across history in many different forms. And she's using... Um, this metaphor of the bird as language to think about precisely those questions of the kind of the ethics of representation and how language is something that you hold in your hand, that it's active, that it can be alive, that it's something that you mould, that you can change, you have to kind of protect and take responsibility for. Um, so, and then that leads in the end of this kind of fable to this, uh, to, to kind of a shift in the ways in which the young people in the story see her blindness they described described the woman as blessed with blindness and we get this kind of this move towards a more kind of collaborative storytelling together by the end rather than a sort of individualistic challenge to her her there's this this sense of a kind of croak something co-created and this again going back to this sense of a kind of moving towards an ideal Morrison's lecture ends with this kind of ongoing collab collaborative process what she describes as grappling with meaning so it's not a sort of finished um it's not it's not a finished process it's not like it hasn't reached a, a final ideal or hasn't simply explained what this metaphorical um uh what, what what the metaphor is definitively but instead it's it's inviting listeners readers 
the next generation who are signified by the young people to kind of continue this process of moving towards an ideal, thinking about the rich metaphorical potential of, of literature, the different ways in which it can be understood, the ways in which they can kind of have some agency as narrators and as sort of critics, analysts of, of, of literary writing and writers, uh, rather than just being kind of passively narrated and how metaphor and the richness of it might enable some of that. So, so this, I think, this ending with this, this, this moment of kind of grappling with meaning is bound up with the, the sort of importance of metaphor because of that possibility, I guess, of, of potential meanings. What about the other uh, laureates you focus in the text then, uh, in your work? Um, what about Faulkner? Um, how does he use uh, body metaphors in his novel lecture? Um, so there's one quotation that is often plucked out of Faulkner's Nobel lecture, which is used on, kind of quite out of context, not really uh, looked at within the broader context of the lecture. And it's this this quotation. Um, and it's that. And when I read it, I think you'll see why so many critics have been been attracted to it, because he says writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself. Man is immortal because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The writer's duty is to write about these things. So this is often seen as Faulkner writing or and talking about the writer in the kinds of um, in the kinds of ways you might expect from that sort of late nineteenth century idea of the ideal that we I mentioned earlier. This kind of transcendental, universalizing kind of a tone that you see here in this quotation, and people often used it. Uh, people like, for example, Faulkner's uh, biographer, Joseph Blotner, or one of his biographers, to make this, uh, to, to, to kind of make this case that Faulkner is in many ways in his work concerned with the kind of the spiritual and with perpetuating a kind of nostalgia for old ideals, a lost golden age of the American South. Um, and in the lecture, uh, he does use this 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 kind of this term, the old verities. And so many critics have seen this lecture as a kind of call to re return to those sort of old truths but actually if you then look at the the quotation within the broader context of the lecture itself um actually it is much more disruptive and radical than this often cited short quotation suggests and it's much more concerned with issues to do with the material and the kind of fragility of individual bodies rather than these universal ideals in many ways um, so it's not a sort of sense of a disembodied universal ideal, um, but instead it's a kind of, he returns again and again to, to physical imagery, to the particular political moment at which the lectures produced. So he registers kind of Cold War anxieties, for example, by, say, by just posing the very direct, blatant question of this sense of when will I be blown up, this constant fear of living living with this physical threat, which, which is obviously in this period. And he talks about the process of being a writer as one that's very, very physical. As he describes a life work in the agony and sweat of the human spirit. So like Morrison's sense of the kind of burden and weight and sense of physically holding language in your hands and of you know the materiality of the text and of the book, he's got this really kind of physical sense of, of writing. Um, and he comes back to these, this imagery of, of bones and of scars to argue that writers must write with pity and compassion. So again, there's these questions about using 
bodies that might be deemed to be imperfect, which obviously in his other works, he's got a novel called Soldier's Pay, where he's thinking about what it means for young men to come back from war and to be disabled and to be uh, to not fit with with all the kind of ideals of masculinity that were imposed upon them in this period. He's talking about coming back to these images of bones, but particularly of scars, um, as a way of thinking about how that might that might pose a kind of challenge for writing, how you might represent some of those experiences in language. And scars can be seen as a kind of writing on the body, of course, a kind of past history written on the body. But also, I think just for just to just to kind of place the sort of, again, the materiality of the body and the, and the, the, the body that is a body that is that is is not a sort of so-called ideal body. Uh, to, to go back to that term, at the centre of, of his, his kind of aesthetic vision at this key moment in his career. So I think Faulkner's conception of the ideal moves away from the idea of perhaps earlier winners of the Nobel Prize, sort of pre-war winners, whereas this idea of bringing benefit to mankind through a sort of pleasure or a return to a kind of golden age. And it marks a moment where actually the kind of text that started to be rewarded mm. were much more challenging and experimental um, in their approach to this question of, of what an ideal kind of writing is. And and for Faulkner, I think like, a bit like uh, Morrison and Kutzier in different ways is this, it's very much about a kind of a process of trying to kind of piece together fragments, fragments of bodies and of stories, and that being a sort of difficult, painful, but also for him, important and ethically charged process I think. Have we touched on how first of all how you pronounce his name? I, I, I would look it up on as like Kusi, but you pronounce it Kusia, is that it? Um yeah I think I've heard is there like a, Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. I think I think um I say Kutsia. Yeah, Kutsia, um, okay. I'll go with that. Him, I've seen him uh, <laughs> talk in person and he used that but I think it's absolutely fine to say that. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll go. Yeah, I'll go with uh, your pronunciation, Kusia. Um. So, uh, how does Kusia fit in? Um. Well, I think it's interesting to think. I guess one thing to say about uh, before we sort of talk about his lecture, I guess, is about um the relationship be- between the writers. So Kusia, um, is obviously he's writing. He's awarded the prize. The most recent one of those three to award the prize. Um. But he's very, very clear about his admiration for Faulkner in particular. Um, he describes him in an essay as the one blazing genius of American literature of the 1930s. So he's really, really, um, and he's not known because he's not known for his, his uh, effusive compliments <laughs> and his criticism. <laughs> so, so that's very, very striking. Um, and he's also written an essay, he's also written an essay uh, called William Faulkner and his biographers. And in that, he's interested in, um, he actually focuses on this story about Faulkner returning from war, um, wanting to kind of tell this story of himself as a hero and feigning disability and feigning kind of injury and having a limp, which actually didn't, hadn't actually happened. So he's really interested in how, focusing this essay on how this kind of fantasy of disability and this story that, that Faulkner told in his life almost seems to act, he argues, as a trigger for the processes of fictionalising and, and, and fiction writing and uh, that he then goes on to do in his career. So 
So there was a kind of definite conversation going on between, you know, direct kind of influence, I guess, between Faulkner, Faulkner uh, on Kutsia, and also Morrison is very, very open about her sense of um, importance of Faulkner's writing for her work. So she she wrote an MA dissertation on Faulkner, and she was particularly interested in this question of like the alienated and outsiders in Faulkner's writing and um, in that. And she's she attended com- a Faulkner conference and she talked about uh, how Faulkner's writing is not just kind of, an, wasn't just an academic interest for her, but she described it as how in a very personal way as a reader, Faulkner had an enormous effect on her. So, and she comes back to Faulkner again and again. So right the way, you know, 30 years after the MA dissertation in her kind of, most celebrated bit of criticism playing in the dark um morrison comes back to faulkner and thinking about how he represents these kind of big outsider figures and how important that is um for her thinking about what she describes as this kind of unspoken africanist presence in uh in american literature so there's a real sort of um there's a clear yeah definitely a sort of conversation going on there and a clear clear kind of connection which I guess again is one of the things that drew me to these to these three writers um but again you don't want to overstate the connection you don't want to you know, Morrison has been very very clear in saying I'm happy to be compared to Faulkner but I don't want to be seen seen as in a kind of direct lineage with him because obviously I'm from a very she's from a very very different kind of background you know she's very much immersed within an African-American tradition um and she's doesn't isn't writing the same kinds of position as a white able-bodied you know man but I think uh, there's this really nice quotation that Morrison describes in Faulkner's work she describes a sort of staring a refusal to look away in his writing that I found admirable and I guess it's that refusal to look away I think which is there in all of the works that I've chosen again I think I mentioned before this kind of trying to find a form for things that are deemed unspeakable addressing the kind of taboos and the unspoken um, aspects of things within society, things that haven't been so much represented in cultural narrative. Um, And I think that kind of refusal to look away and the sort of discomfort and uncompromising element of that, but also compelling element of that, um, is something that I think they, they all share. So I think that's very much played out in some ways to quite an extreme degree in Kutsia's writing. Are there any other recent Nobel laureates or more recently you've revisited their uh, Nobel laureates, these works, and who have engaged with disability? Um, uh, do you have any insights on that? Um, yes. So I think there are a few other laureates who have really engaged with these questions. And two examples that spring to mind are um, Kenzaburg Uri, who's a winner of the Nobel Prize, who, who makes very clear in his Nobel lecture that he is uh, very much inspired by this question which in some ways connects to the things I've been talking about this question of trying to imagine the world from the point of view of his intellectually disabled son and the, the sort of rich possibilities of that for writing and creativity and imagination but also the problems of speaking for somebody else particularly a person who is largely non-verbal so I think there's some really really fascinating uh, work that could be done on more detail on on Uri. and um and the other example that really is is quite a powerful one I think in terms of the kind of performance of the uh, lecture itself in relation to disability Carol Pinter who 
who won the Nobel Prize in 2005. And that was a point in which he was very ill um, with cancer and he was uh, in a wheelchair uh, for the pre-recorded lecture, uh, which he gave at, you know, at a distance. So disability was very much part of the performance of the lecture, but it was also a very, that's a sort of backdrop for the very visceral physical metaphors that he uses within the lecture. Um, and so he uses that kind of platform, this, this, this moment of giving the lecture to attack by Mr. Tony Blair and American President Bush uh, for their invasion of Iraq. And he's, he just, so he uses this, this cancer metaphor and he describes how low intense conflict means that you infect the heart of the country, that you establish a malignant growth and watch the gangrene bloom. So Pinter's obviously using this kind of highly personal um, metaphor to make a very political and public um, attack on that, that policy of invasion. And he's very clear about criticising the ways in which the British media are refusing to publish images of children who've uh, become disabled as a result of the war injuries that they've sustained uh, as part of that invasion. So it's a, a lecture that's very, very focused on the kind of the physical realities of disability. And he gives it at this moment where he's recovering from cancer of the throat and there's a real physical struggle to speak, which is but the insistence on the desire to speak and, and, and the, the responsibility of doing that is, I think, an act of real or kind of physical but also political defiance, which is very bound up together. And I, so I think that kind of idea that I touched on before of, of this refusal to look away that Morrison admired in Faulkner, really a feature of, of Faulkner and Morrison's works, but also is very much in Pitt's work too. And this Nobel lecture really, think, really embodies that. All right. So, uh, Alice, um, what are you working on recently then um, since, since your book? Uh, on disability studies in Nobel lectures? Um, so one of the things that I'm really um, passionate about is is trying to make sure that these kinds of perspectives um, to do with disability studies, but also to do with thinking about health and illness um, and embodiment are become more part of English literature degrees and other and other literatures, of course, as well. But obviously I'm working within an English literature department. Um, so um, I've been working on a couple of edited books which which kind of try to support that aim I guess uh, so recently completed the Routledge Companion to Literature and Disability which has got a really really broad range of essays from many many different uh, writers and critics on on an organised by genre as a way for students and scholars and anyone who in, who's interested really into perhaps into this field way of them to access it a bit more easily and then I'm just in the process of um, editing and writing an introduction for a book which is called Contemporary Literature and the Body. So this is one that really tries to think not just about disability perspectives, although that is one element of it, but thinking about the ways in which um, exploring representations of the body can help us to think about intersectional identities and the relationship between different um critical movements like feminism, disability studies, post-colonial studies, but also how movements are rooted within specific activist campaigns. Um, so that's a project that I'm excited about and hoping will be published earlier. Thank you for listening and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. 
You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Kachi Turk. The production team is Wilma Kamala, Brian Cheng, Mandy Lau, Sade Wong, Audrey Chan, Celine Wong, and Gwen Wong. <laughs>